Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi or Tāmaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. Convulsive changes in journalism following the advent of the internet have exposed the editorial business divide and spawned ethical dilemmas. Navigating these choppy seas is the first female executive editor of the New York Times, Jill Abramson, who was fired in 2014 after less than three years in the job. In her new book, Merchants of Truth, The Business of News and the Fight for Facts, she investigates reporting at four news organisations. Two have towering reputations, the New York Times and the Washington Post, and two, BuzzFeed and Vice, are relatively new entrants of whom Abramson said they, along with other digital media, were given the old guard serious competition and heartburn. Following publication of Merchants of Truth, Abramson herself now stands accused of factual errors and unethical behaviour, namely plagiarism, a charge which she refutes. She joins Toby Manhire to discuss the controversy, the fourth estate, and whether cat videos are really all we can now expect. The session is supported by Platinum Bold patron Teresa Gatting, and we hope you enjoy it. Um, before we rip into it, a special thanks to Pat Platinum Bold patron Teresa Gatting for her support of Jill's appearances in Auckland. Jill will be signing copies of her books in the foyer after this session, uh, and we will open the floor here to questions a little later. Um, Although it may be a challenge to top the effort of the audience, I think it was in Sydney the other day, according to a report in The Guardian, quote, an argument between two men in the audience almost came to blows <laughs> when one apparently began muttering loudly about PC feminist bullshit and another asked him to pipe down. Uh-oh. <laughs> did, did you witness that or did that just happen? Did you hear this altercation in the audience at your event? I did not. No. This is the first I know of it. How exciting. <laughs> Here I am sitting clueless. Um, um, that's good, um, <laughs> just as well. The, the book, Jill, came out to kind of rave reviews and approbation, and um, it was all going swimmingly, and then suddenly there was a sort of derailing, mm-hmm. and, and um, you came in for criticisms, um, uh, and cl- there, were, there were allegations of plagiarism. Um, and you've rejected those, but you have acknowledged that there were some errors in the, yes, in the first version of the book. Um, you want me to elaborate? I, 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 I think we'd just sort of get it out of the way, yeah. <laughs> I could what? just start crying. Oh. And, uh, that, um, would be, that, would be, that would be even worse than a fist uh, fight in the audience, probably. Yeah, th- th- this book was you know, meticulously reported. It, it is a yarn. It's not a dutiful mm. tome about the importance of freedom of the press, though I feel that's a, a you know, touchstone important issue, is, and it's uh, under siege in my country. Uh, but um, I knew right before the book was published that Vice which was one of the four, was very unhappy Mm. with what I wrote about them, which surprised me because, you know, it's, well, you've read it. It credits them with doing some really good, especially video journalism. But 
They had a hard scrabble beginning as kind of a sex, drugs, and rock and roll laddie magazine. And they're trying, I think, to be purchased and, or have an IPO. And they didn't, you know, were resentful at having that regurgitated. And also, you know, I had some reporting that questioned the standards they use mm. in their interviewing, especially. Mm. And so um, a good source of mine at BuzzFeed actually told me about a month before the book was published, get ready, because one of the executives at Vice was calling around and had called him to see, will you join us in a takedown of Jill's book? And, you know, I had no idea what was coming at me. But, you know, I, the, there was one correspondent there who posted six passages that he said were plagiarized. And they were in, like, a portion of very few pages about Vice's beginning. And I was sloppy. And, you know, there are 834 source citations mm. in the book, 70 pages of them. And many of the people and uh, news organizations that this correspondent said I'd plagiarized from are credited sometimes multiple times in those other citations. It's just I didn't have the proper citations for those six passages, which I've apologized for, I've called the authors of those pieces, and I corrected all of the mistakes. And, you know, I felt terrible that, you know, there, there was anything wrong with the book. I had tried to make it spotless, but plagiarism, this wasn't. Mm, mm. And you've updated the for the second edition yeah. for all those passages. And, and so fixed, on. you know, the the ebook and yeah. audio book right away. The um, the sort of almost the template or the inspiration for the book is a nineteen seventy nine book by um, David Halberstam, isn't it? Um, about uh, called The Powers That Be. Right. Um, that also took a group of media companies Four. and kind of and, and examined them in parallel very much in, in the way you do. Why did you, when you set out, why did you alight on Vice and BuzzFeed? I mean, the New York Times and the Washington Post, I suppose, present themselves fairly straightforwardly. But you could have, for example, done a book which you did Fox, Fox and CNN or right. something. What was it that um, made you zone in on? Well, the timeline of the book is sort of 2008 to 2018, when every news shop was trying so desperately to both go digital first and find a way to monetize their journalism. Mm. And at the Times, there was a, a committee that did um, an innovation report, and it kind of dripped with envy about BuzzFeed and Vice. BuzzFeed and Vice were doing uh, well and making money off of native advertising, which is a kind of brand advertising that I find detestable. But you know, you get 
a lot of money for it. It's ads masquerading as the other content on your site. And, you know, I just, I wanted to dramatize in a narrative uh, that would be gripping that struggle to become digital. And Vice and BuzzFeed were digital natives. So they appealed to me. Vice was in the forefront of making video, you know, its main attraction. And it really built itself on the back of YouTube, which is of course owned by Google. And BuzzFeed built itself on Facebook. And both of them were getting, you know, clicks galore. I had bigger audiences than, than the times when I started the book and had higher valuation than the Times, mm. uh, which is ridiculous. It's, I mean, Vice in particular uh, has um, hit troubled waters lately. We had a very good small Vice office in New Zealand, right. which is closed. I know. That. Um, um, and it did some great work, whether that was because of or in spite of the um, global operation, I don't know. But just last week, Disney basically acknowledged that their 400, yeah, they, 400 million dollar investment um, They took, advice. I think, a 356 million dollar write down yeah, yeah. on an, an investment they had made in Vice. And they've had layoffs, including, I think, some here in yeah. Australia. And so the story switched on me in the middle of my research. Yeah. And especially after Donald Trump's election in 2016, you know, the old guard, the Times and the Post, had a big Trump bump. And they were signing up uh, millions more digital subscribers who were actually paying for their news. And at the same time, digital advertising that was supposed to carry BuzzFeed and Vice into the promised land was not. And, you know, we're at a point now where 90% of new digital advertising is vacuumed up by Facebook and Google. So, you know, the very platforms that kind of made Vice and BuzzFeed are now practically destroying them. Mm. They, I mean, at one point, Vice had a valuation of uh, $5.7 right, billion. Right, almost $6 which billion. Dollars. Incredible. And probably bullshit from the... Total. Nobody knows, because they're privately held, whether Vice or BuzzFeed makes a penny hmm. in profit. I suspect not. There was that um, New York Magazine headline story where there was headline, the, the Vice was built on a bluff. Right. Do you think that, that, that that's true? Well, I think it's partly true because the, the head of Vice uh, is Shane Smith and you know, it started out, as I said, as a Laddie magazine in Canada where the three founders were sleeping on a floor eating rice and beans out of cans. Mm. And, you know, they had no money. But Shane Smith, everyone considers, like, both the best marketer and the best bullshitter they've ever met. <laughs> so, you know, just he kept, you know, 
sort of bragging about the value. And, you know, before you know it, he's on Forbes's list of billionaires. Mm. And he owns this outlandishly large mansion in near Los Angeles. And, you know, it's kind of crazy. But I think that New York Magazine hit it right. I mean, that was already the direction I was going mm. in. And, you know, some people have even called it a Ponzi scheme, you know, sort of built on nothing real. Uh, Amazing. BuzzFeed, meanwhile, um, for many people, is still associated with you know lists of lists of cats and things like that, and they still do that. They moved into adorable news eventually. kittens and puppies. You can see. Um, I love adorable kittens and puppies. Jill is talking say. about puppies tomorrow. Yes, session, I aren't am. You? So you can go. And there's a panel about is it specifically dog puppies or dog, like dogs that. more generally? So you can go and see that. Um, uh, can you just talk a bit about the what um, Peretti, the person, the, the sort of founder of BuzzFeed, what he called the the Board at Work Network, I think, is that right? The Board at Work Network. Uh, BuzzFeed has its uh, equivalent of Shane Smith in a young you know, CEO named Jonah Peretti, who started out at MIT in, in Boston in the US, studying like how information passes from person to person. And he really was the first to discover how to use virality, information or pictures or silly stories being shared by millions of people. And that, you know, was sort of the basis of BuzzFeed. And the con he, he was not, neither Shane Vice nor BuzzFeed did news in the beginning. But the, the content that Peretti was creating at BuzzFeed was for what he called the Bored at Work Network. You know, people who, you know, were bored with their jobs and sitting in front of a computer terminal, and when the boss wasn't looking, they were looking at their Facebook feeds. So, you know, and he, why adorable puppies and kittens? Uh, because he thinks the kind of information and content that all of us can't resist sharing on Facebook is emotional content either things that outrage you or in the case of kittens, you go, aw, you know, and you think sharing it with someone who may be having a tough day is gonna bring a smile to their face. So that's what the board at Work Network was. And all of that, I mean, he was very much head of the curve as well on Huffington Post, where they, where search engine optimization was the right. thing back in that day. Was I mean, he's very good at, but the, all of those, tools uh, in mainstream journalism is now, as well now, aren't they? And you, you know, we, I mean, it's now totally commonplace for people who work in um, media outfits to have screens up, Chartbeat or Parsley or Chart whatever, or just, just watching, watching the numbers the kind of. Uh, absolutely. The Washington Post uh, 
you know, which is so famous for Watergate and used to have, you know, festooned on the walls of its lobby in Washington, pictures of its owner, Catherine Graham, and Ben Bradley, who, you know, was the editor who published Woodward and Bernstein's stories. And now they're in a brand new building that Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, who bought the Post in 2013, they're in a brand new building and there are these huge screens which have the data second by second of what people are reading which stories uh, online. And there are these huge screens that hang in their newsroom too. Uh, I was not a fan of uh, either Chartbeat, which is you know, uh, one of the big groups in the US that measures what, what people are reading and what's trending. And, uh, you know, because I worried that it would inevitably begin to color, like, which stories at the Times were being chosen to be at the top of the homepage. Uh, because, and, and the reporters started to become obsessed mm. with their standing on Chartbeat. And one of the reporters who um, I talked to at the Washington Post told me that he talked to his psychiatrist a lot about Chartbeat and his fear of being a Chartbeat flop. We have, we have a, um, one of the just very basic ways of measuring it is something called Google Analytics. And um, I'm now embarrassed right. to say that Every, my, my small children that. now get excited when they see the number move around because it's just sitting in the lounge when we're at home. <laughs> and so my children are now addicted to Google Analytics as well. Uh -huh. But it is, it does become- Are they become... measuring dad's spin-off? Yes, that's some... right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. All right. Um, their da data, an data analysis unit. Um, the, <laughs> But, but I mean, that, that's useful, right? To some, you would, I mean, you don't, you, you don't say useful, it's not useful in some but way. But it's not useful in this way. A columnist at the Times told me a couple of weeks before Merchants of Truth came out that mm. if he is not writing about Trump in some way and Trump isn't in the headline of his column, he is not trending. And he wants to write about other things, but he knows, you know, if Trump is featured in his column, it's gonna get a lot of clicks. And so it's useful, but it is also warping in some, mm. in some ways. Um, I'm trying to put off talking about Donald Trump as long as possible, but since you mentioned Sorry. Because <laughs> you, you have some criticisms about the Times, and its coverage of Trump, which is sort of connected to that. And can you, I mean, it's, I think it's been misinterpreted, your criticism in some places. Mm -hmm. Do you want to explain what, it, what, what, what you think the New York Times isn't getting right in terms of the way it covers Trump, or media more generally? Um, I'll talk about the Times and media yeah. generally. Uh, I think the Times went wild and had too many stories every day about Trump's tweets, the Mueller investigation, you know, 
intrigue in the White House, plus many opinion columns, so that when I would go on the Times app, I would sometimes you know, swipe through two screens before I could find a story on anything else, and it seemed disproportionate to me. And it creates, I think, among not Times loyalists who are by and large from the big cities and are cosmopolitan and liberal in their outlook and highly educated and affluent. I don't think, you know, they, you know, like the anti-Trump material, but in the rest of the country, it foments the belief that the news media is biased, which is one of the main reasons why public trust in the news media is at a low point in the US. Uh, people cite it's all biased. And of course, Facebook figures out exactly what you like and what you share. And so it creates in news a kind of filter bubble where liberals are only seeing left-leaning content and conservatives are seeing only Fox and right-wing material. So, you know, for the, the news organizations that are mainly headquartered on the two coasts, New York, Washington, LA, you know, they've raked it in off Trump uh, and and you know the reader revenue of the Times has increased hugely since every time Trump calls the New York Times the failing New York Times, I hear ka-ching. I hear yeah. the cash register yeah. because you know it, it it's getting them many more readers, millions of new readers who are willing to pay digital subscriptions and. So I, I just think you need to calibrate it a bit more that, you know, the speed <laughs> of the news cycle, the vacuum mm. of the Facebook news feed and Twitter, you know, encourages, you know, something new and something new about Trump often. And, you know, it, it's a little bit of a, Catch 22. It's profitable, but it may not be the best journalism. And, you know, I criticized the Times over its coverage of Hillary Clinton's email, which was a little similar. It was originally their scoop uh, before the 2016 election that Hillary Clinton had a private email server. But, you know, then week after week, it was played at the top of the front page, on the web, and you would have thought it was Watergate. And it turned out not to be. And you know, some people, I, I think the Times' coverage by and large of the Mueller investigation was a public service and really good, but you know, in, in the U.S., people are talking about the collusion delusion of the news media, that they went too far in buying into, that there was, you know, a treacherous plot. Do you, you presumably still get the print edition of the New York Times? Do you still I get didn't it on your... for a couple of years. Right. I was only reading 
digitally, digitally. but I found that I was missing things, that there's something about turning the pages that is a kind of, it's, it's a form of serendipitous reading. You're not necessarily searching for something specific yeah. or related stories. You know, you just see something interesting and you don't really know why you're reading it, but it's sort of you have a wow, that's interesting. And, you know, I wasn't thoroughly reading the culture sections. I love, you know, their coverage of books and art and theater and film. I was never getting to that. Because you were clicking on the Trump stories. Trump stories. Because it, I was going to ask, is there, because there's, I mean, a, a newspaper or a print product, more, more, it's easier to express proportionality, you know, when you right. as an editor. You and see the hierarchy that the editors have created yeah. of what they think is the most important material for you to read. But that very notion is rejected by BuzzFeed. Yeah. They think... You know, editors are not all-knowing. They're not, no one elected us. We're not gods. And that the the audience is, you know, fed up with editors deciding what they need to know. Mm. And in part, that's why BuzzFeed published the Steele dossier, um, you know, which had all kinds of salacious allegations about Trump and Moscow, and many other news organizations had it but didn't run it. Mm. And when BuzzFeed posted it, there you know, was a lot of debate over whether that was a bad thing. But they believe you know, the audience gets to say what it likes and wants. <laughs> Sorry. And they've got, I mean, as you've said already, though, both, neither of those organizations started off doing news. They started off well, I mean, you're certainly not doing conventional news, and then they kind of grew into it and then started doing more investigations right. and doing the... And and they didn't have the same... Well, they didn't have the kind of decades and centuries of established norms and conventions and editorial accountability. But has that then changed the old media in terms of the way they... The journalism is done. I, I guess I'm saying, you know, like the publishing of the Steele dossier, for example. Does the fact that that sort of thing happens now more, there's more competition to be first and to, you know, hit there that sure Trump thing? Is. Has that influenced the, the old school players? Um, you know, I just think the speed of the web news cycle mm. influences you don't want to be beaten, get the story out there. I don't think the Times would publish the dossier today. So that, you know, they felt it couldn't be verified. They put some of their best reporters on that story to investigate was it true, and they couldn't confirm it. So their decision, I think, would stick. Mm. Uh, When you come in the book, at a certain point you're telling the stories, and then it comes to a point, I think it was part two, of the New York Times. Right. And then you, the, you, you're recounting these dramas, but at that point, one of the characters in the drama is you. Right. So you have to sort of shift, you, have, you, you, have to, you take, took a sort of policy decision about the way you I did. told that part of the story. Do you want to say what that part of the story no, is I want, about? I want, I oh, you, you want me to. Yeah. Well, in... <laughs> 
In May of 2014, I was very abruptly fired as executive editor. Uh, I can talk more about the various factors of why I think that happened, which I put in the book because it was my frustrations and opposition to certain commercial things that the Times was doing, you know, in digital space, you know, I, I had concerns about. They flouted some of the old rules that I had grown up with, you know, in, in newspapers, and I had, kind of, you know, frequent combat with the business side of the Times, mm. which probably wasn't the best politics uh, for the editor. Yeah. But so, you know, I had to write about my, my firing, uh, not because, you know, I'm angry about it still, but it was linked to this, you know, changing world that we were dealing with. And I wrote that part, which is about 25 pages, it's not a big part of the book. I think it was considered the juiciest part of the <laughs> book, uh, because New York Magazine took that as its excerpt. As would yeah. have you done if you'd been the editor looking for an extra, wouldn't right, you? Right, yeah. as I would have too. And I, try, I had to write and rewrite those pages over and over again. At first, ridiculously, I tried, since the rest of the narrative is third person. Right. Did you actually I, write Gillette Bramson walked into the room? I said Abramson went up to the publisher. <laughs> I did. I tried it that way. It was yeah. just ridiculous. Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. So I just told, told the story in the I voice. And, you know, I, I set it up by saying, uh, you know, very admired old book in the U.S. is um, The Education of Henry Adams, who was a relative of John Adams and the story, storied Adams family. And his wife committed suicide. And there's, it's an autobiography, and you read two thirds of it, and then the next chapter heading is 20 years later. So that was an option, you know, yeah. to just skip it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because, you know, it was, you know, not obviously as terrible as anybody's death, but. I could have, I thought about that, um, but I didn't think that would work either. So I explain, I kind of explain my mm. options mm. in the book mm. before I write the 20 pages in first person. And um, of, of, the, of that firing particularly, you called it a firing, um, the publisher, Salzburg, Arthur Salzberger, presented you, as you explained with it in the book, release. with a press release explaining that you had resigned, that you were right. to... No, that before, I had decided to step down. That you decided to step down, right. Um, but you weren't having that. You weren't I having that because... Because I looked at him and I said, Arthur, I've devoted my life to telling the truth and I'm not going to stop now. You, you're firing me. And, you know, the immediate press after this was very bad for him and the Times. And, 
younger women especially seem to be really appreciative of the fact that I wasn't too embarrassed or shamed or whatever to say what happened. I mean, most people, let's face it, get fired during the course of their careers. They just do. But it was sort of, sort of liberating to yeah, them, yeah. I think. I was very happy of that. It became a sort of, a, for, it became a story in itself for a little while, didn't it? The, New York yeah, Post I dined mean, out on it and so on. There was, I became a hashtag became on a hashtag. Twitter. Well done. The hashtag was pushy because <laughs> that was, you know, criticism. Arthur said I was fired because of my quote unquote management style. Um, and some uh, people described it as pushy. And so hashtag pushy went viral on, on the web. And a friend of mine who's a jewelry designer even designed necklaces and bracelets and rings that just said pushy on them. If you, Jill will be happy to sign pushy on your yeah, copy of the I book will. if you would. That was being done, I'm assuming, ironically, mostly by the people oh, deploying that yeah, hashtag, right? sure. Because in part, that those are the kind of things that tend not to be because said about it's men such a in leadership, stereotype right? Stereotype for for women. You know the the qualities that are seen as leadership in men are seen. There are multiple studies on this. Are seen in the business world and in most organizations as you're too ambitious, you're pushy, you're even worse than that. Uh, and, you know, it's, there are also many studies that show when women actually get to the top and have the top job that their popularity goes this way. And it does not apply to men either. So there's a total double standard. He... There is. David Carr crops up in the book a couple of times. Mm -hmm. probably, so many people have probably seen him in the film Page One, which is about the New York Times and ends up being sort of a film about David Carr and there's an amazing scene in it when he goes to Vice and gives yeah. him a dressing down and you, 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 you touch on that. But you also quote him in defense of you, but writing a very David Carr type sentence. He says that, of your firing, that you didn't Say deserve who he sent, it's an email that he sent, do you remember to who? Who was it to? To Lena, the actress That's Lena right, Dunham, yeah. who starred in Girls. And she wanted to know what she should think. What she, 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 she wrote David to say, what should I think? Yeah, what should I think about Jill Abramson's sacking? And his response was, in part, that you didn't deserve to be, and this is a quote, dragged out into the public square and stoned to death for being a bitch. <laughs> And I wanted to ask you, did it feel at all like that? Or is, I mean, did it feel at the time like that was happening? You know, a bit it yeah. did. Uh, and David also defended me on the journalism. I mean, I feel a little bad that we're not talking about the actual work yeah. at the times that I helped uh, shepherd into the paper. Yeah. Uh, including you know, a great story that got us banned in China. Uh, then you can't, 
and without a VPN, you can't get nytimes.com in China. So no, no one was criticizing my news shops yeah. or my journalism. We, we were winning Pulitzers right and left. Yeah. So it was all this personal stuff, which is always you know, the measurement of, of women leaders. Uh-huh. Uh, Luckily, your prime minister, you know, has a wonderful style and seems like such a natural at her job that I don't think it's applied to her, but... There was a bit. <laughs> we could talk about that Was she ever called pushy? Um, I don't know if she's had pushy, but there, were, there was some interesting stuff that happened during the election campaign um, that one wouldn't have seen said to a male counterpart anyway, so pushy right. maybe not, but certainly. But you know, it was important in the newsroom of the Times that I, I was the first woman to be Washington bureau chief, mm. mani- managing editor, which is a job I got in 2003 actually, and did until uh, 2011, and, and then executive editor. And so there was a certain pride that after like 150 years, finally, you know, a woman had been appointed executive editor. And, and you know, it was, you know, a trauma for, for some of them. I'm not saying all of them, but, you know, the masthead of the Times, which is the list of the most senior editors that's pub- published every day in the newspapers, it took me one year to make that half women. I mean, we are half the sky, but, you know, there were relatively few women on the masthead before I, oops, sorry, became became executive editor. And I very much promoted coverage of gender. Uh, which we weren't doing that much of. Uh, we did a great series that won a Pulitzer about um, women in Afghanistan. Uh, and one of the reporters who I picked to do a gender line of coverage is the reporter who broke the Harvey Weinstein story and helped start the Me Too movement. So I think all of that was important, along with really tough investigative reporting. I think, you know, you know, the the Times was in shame, you know, at the point no WMD was found after the war in Iraq. Uh, The Times published you know, many front page stories that were based on flawed intelligence. And, you know, some of our readers were furious. You know, why were you, you know, so credulous about what government officials were saying? And so when Bill Keller and I were suddenly brought in as executive editor and managing editor in 2003, at the point in the summer, you know, no WMD had been found. And we were determined to 
do accountability journalism on ourselves, but really restore the integrity of our investigative reporting. And, you know, under Keller, under Abramson, and under Dean Bacay now, it's just, you know, glorious, really, really good. And, you know, what, what's interesting to me is that at the point BuzzFeed just started doing news in 2012, they didn't do any investigative reporting. <clears throat> but now they have an investigative reporting unit almost the same size mm. as The Times. And they were finalists for a big investigation they did. The, I mean, it a is- A finalist for a Pulitzer, for a Pulitzer. sorry. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is, it, the, the, it's kind of unrecognizable the, the, the New York Times around, around the time when you got in the door. The, not just, apart from the, 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 the kind of questions around the journalism relating to the WMDs, and then we're still recovering from the Jason Blair thing. The business was in a, like the, you, the state of the, the business. After the financial right? crisis. The Times was in danger of going out of business until it got a huge loan from Mexican billionaire Carlos, Carlos Slim, who you know has a telecommunications monopoly in uh, Mexico, and and without that loan, which was at some outrageous interest rate, because you know after the 2008 financial crisis, banks weren't lending money, uh, so you know without. Carlos Slim as a white knight, I'm not sure, you know, we would have pulled through. Mm. So, yeah, you know, it was a time of, you know, circulation was going down and print advertising was beginning to fall off a cliff. And print advertising was the major revenue source for the Times uh, until suddenly it was disappearing. And... Now the bulk of the revenue comes from readers. It comes from print circulation, which has gone down, but it's kind of gone down like this, not like mm. this. Mm. And a subscri home delivery subscription to the Times costs about 1100 $1, bucks in the US, which is expensive. And you know, digital digital subscription costs less, but you know they have now they've crossed the four million you know marker of having four million readers paying to read the news report. So reader revenue is keeping the Times in good shape now. And that's you on that subject. Uh, the, the New Zealand Herald, as you know, is just really open. Right. Uh, you, you went to visit them the other day. I went to their newsroom to, to visit. I'm curious to know what you said to them about your, the, their paywall and what you really think. <laughs> Look, you know, I'm the girl who said I was fired. I don't have a two-track two uh, way of talking. I'm not a guarded speaker. And what I said to them, I mean, they've had initial success. They're pleased with the number of people willing to pay, you know, for, for the digital herald. But um, I told them that it's not going to sustain them into the future unless 
they do journalism that is really worth paying for. <laughs> um, you can't do, you know, commodity journalism, the same stories that everybody else has, or clickbait, or stories that, frankly, insult the intelligence of readers. So, that. Who's going to pay for that? So. But that's, that's a good thing, isn't it? If the model incentivizes, incentivizes quality. Quality, then, then, right. Then, then that's it a does. good place to be. Right. I think it does. But, you know, newspapers, at least in the U.S., uh, smaller ones, yeah. local ones, have been stripped down for parts or yeah. sold. They've yeah. gone out of business. So... It's not a model that can, it can work for the Times and the Washington yeah. Post and the Wall Street Journal, the FT, the Guardian, you know, which asks for donations from its readers. But there aren't that many others who can really do it. It's, it's been, a, I mean, it's been a, almost an a apocalypse for those, those metro dailies in yes. America and the local news. And as it's you, called the news drought. Right. And you talk, I mean, you, you, you kind of conclude on the, the trust point and on the local journalism point. And, I mean, this is an the impossible question. But what is the answer to that? What is the, how's the how, how are we going to fix that? It's terrible for democracy. You know, terrible. And I wish I had a prescription mm. for, you know, bringing local and regional newspapers and news coverage Back, there are a number of really high quality all digit like 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 yours, like very high quality local digital, you know, mm. websites in Texas, in California, in New York. You know, um, there there's one really good one in Minneapolis, which used to have a great newspaper and does no more. But it's terrible for democracy because it means that there's going to be more corruption in journalism because it's the press who holds power to account. And if nobody's the watchdog, we're in trouble. <laughs> Part of that problem, that matrix, whatever, is of course Facebook and Google, which kind of float through the book. They're kind of right. like they kind of they kind of haunt the book and it will haunt, haunt the, the story. Character, right? Yeah. Way. Facebook gets it its own chapter. I mean, you could another way you could have done the book would be to have to, to follow Facebook, and, right. and that's. I sort of do because yeah. what what we're also not talking about. There's a lot of gossip, juicy gossip in the book. A lot of good uh, juicy gossip. Um, and one piece of juicy gossip, which actually, and I. I credit them was an anecdote that I learned from an author who wrote a book about Mark Zuckerberg and the creation of Facebook. But Don Graham, who was the owner of the Washington Post and the publisher, you know, met Mark Zuckerberg in early days and invited him to come to the Washington Post and make a presentation about what was then called just the Facebook. 
And Graham said to me in, in one of my interviews with him, he thought it was the best business idea he had ever heard. And he offered Zuckerberg, you know, something on the order of, you know, maybe $7 million, I think, for he, to, to invest if he could get 10% of Facebook when, at a point when it would go public. And Zuckerberg actually made a handshake deal with him. Went back to California and a venture capital fund offered him more money. And, you know, he was, he really liked Don Graham. Uh, Don Graham was the first outside director of Facebook and he'd shaken hands with him. And so he was with his partners, you know, back home trying to decide what to do. And he went upstairs of the restaurant to the men's room and didn't come back down. And so one of his partners went up to the restroom to make sure he was okay. And he was actually crying on the floor of the restroom because he so dreaded calling Don Graham <laughs> to ask to be let out of the deal. But Don Graham being like a really, really nice man when he called, said, look, you know, go ahead. Uh, never imagining, of course, he would have never had to sell the post to Jeff Bezos if he had 10% of Facebook. <laughs> That's the thing. One way or another, some, some dude from Silicon Valley is in charge of everything, it seems right. like. You know? right. um, the, on Facebook, which is um, always in the news now, I mean, our prime minister, uh, shortly after Christchurch said in a speech in Parliament that oh. Facebook cannot be the postman, it is the publisher, which is a thing that Zuckerberg for a long time resisted, the idea that Facebook he was a publisher. He still insists they're a he's technology not a company, publisher. Um, and then we had in the Times, the, the, with a lot of fanfare, a very sort of cross-platform from the co-founder of Facebook who uh, called Chris for Hughes. it to be broken up. He's been gone for up. a really long time and been a critic for a long yeah. time. What do you think in terms of that? There are people in Paris talking about it in some way. What, what, what do you do? You do you believe in the break the break them up model? Do you think what sort of what sort of action should be taken about Facebook? In the break up model, I also believe that news organi organizations should stop giving their stories to Facebook for free just to try and get you know, a cut of, it's tempting, there are 2.2 billion yeah. users. Yeah. Let's stop doing that. What's Rupert Murdoch, who owned the Wall Street Journal, never gave Facebook a word yeah. of Wall Street Journal journalism. It's worse than that, we actually pay them to take a, you know, we and publishers pay for you're paying boosting for posts the to get the, which for, is an extraordinary for scale. And they right. it's extraordinary, and they yeah, just they couldn't care less or purport not to care less. But you know, you mentioned Christchurch, mm. and you know, the fact also that you know Facebook and Twitter have kind of become sewers. Uh, they say they're policing what's on their platforms, and yet. Christchurch was streamed, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, which is horrifying. Uh, 
So, you know, I, I think Facebook and, and Twitter also have to take more responsibility for what's on their platforms. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.